welcome to Twill, the week in health law. The Affordable Care Act is the craziest thing in the world, podcast of record <laughs> for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on October 7th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined as always by my illustrious co-host. Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And I hope you can do a better Bill Clinton than I can, Frank. <laughs> so a quick reminder that it only takes a moment to go to iTunes and rate the show. Please help us out here. Uh, your reviews and comments really help the show. And before we get rolling, I just wanted to uh, greet uh, some uh, new friends in Italy who were such gracious hosts at the seminar in Rome I spoke at last week. So if you're listening, Italo or Gianluco, ciao. So this week on Twill, we are happy to welcome back Alison Hoffman, Professor of Law at UCLA School of Law and a faculty associate at the UCLA Center for Health Policy Research. Professor Hoffman's research explores the role of regulation and the welfare state in promoting health and well-being. Her writing examines how health insurance regulation both reflects and shapes different conceptions of risk and responsibility. Big welcome back to the pod, Alison. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me back. So we do have a few things on our desks that we need to uh, tip into the big rectangular filing cabinet on the floor, Frank. Um, I have, in my first lightning, I have three super lightning follow-ups. First of all, uh, the FTC, in its amicus brief in the Teladoc case before the Fifth Circuit, the sharp-eyed readers noted footnote one, quote, FTC staff is investigating the underlying actions that are subject of this appeal. Ha ha ha. So everybody, brush up on your North Carolina teeth, teeth whitening case in preparation for the Fifth Circuit arguments. Next, and really no comment is necessary from me, but LabMD still refuses to give up and has appealed to the 11th Circuit uh, with regard to the FTC Security Enforcement Authority. So that one will continue to play out. I'm still worried about that from the FTC's perspective. I think it's a weak case, but still. And thirdly, uh, CMS has okayed Kentucky's switch from its own and very successful Connect Exchange, the Federal Exchange. Now, this, of course, is a terrible idea, but it does have one slight silver lining. Savvy researchers should be able to compare the two models, as will CMS, with Director Andy Slavitt commenting, we remain concerned that Connect's transition to the Federal platform may disrupt the seamless system system of coverage that Connect established. Uh, and so eligible people may face delays, etc. And it's that seamless nature of the state um, uh, exchange that I think was so important and that the good people of Kentucky are likely to miss. Over to you, Frank. Hey, thanks, Nick. Uh, wonderful follow-up on all of those. Um, and my first uh, entry in our lightning round is a relatively entertaining one. I just wanted to be sure to note it for um, those who might have missed it on the New York Times Upshot blog, which was reporting on a study of the political affiliations of various medical professionals. It's pretty fascinating to see the uh, surgeons and anesthesiologists are about two-thirds Republican, uh, going down to those geriatrics, pediatrics, and psychiatry are about two-thirds Democratic. And the article offers some other theories or hypotheses about, say, intervening 
interesting causal effects here. I'm sure there's all sorts of wonderful speculation one could make about the nature of the professional role and the ideology that may obtain among those who choose it. Uh, but I just find it a really fascinating uh, area. And by the way, the emergency physicians appear to be exactly in the middle. Um, so that's another uh, area of interest. And there's a nice chart showing the um, uh, range of pay among specialties. The next uh, lightning round point I had is actually uh, an effort to sort of tee up some of our discussion today, which is a report on a lawsuit filed by the Evangelical Lutheran Good Samaritan Society, which is a nonprofit that, offer, that operates uh, long-term care facilities in Kansas. And they are suing Kansas over its asset verification process. And to sort of play off of your point about the move from Connect to the Federal Exchange, this was an opposite move where there was an older asset verification program, I think provided by the federal government, and then Kansas decided to do their own, and now there's this massive backlog of applications there. Uh, of course, this also fits into the ongoing fiscal crisis caused by enormous tax cuts uh, in what is sometimes referred to as Brownbackistan, uh, Sam Brownback's uh, uh, neck of the woods, uh, Kansas. So this is a very interesting case to follow, um, and I think that you know it's, it's showing some real crises uh, that I've seen complained about in various areas about the plight of the disabled, the very elderly, um, in states that take a hard right turn against funding uh, some of these very essential facilities. And so it's a lawsuit I'll be following closely. Thanks. Yeah, that's serious problems and, and way more serious than whether your podiatrist is a libertarian. <laughs> yes. And may, I add, may I add something to this lightning round on a, on a depressing note? Mm, yeah. Uh, I've been reflecting today on Hurricane Matthew and the effects in Haiti, uh, which hit uh, yesterday and today. And it reminds me that when we talk about health and we, when we talk about health while we're often thinking about medicine and high-tech health, and so much of what is important to people's health is public health infrastructure as well. And when you see the level of devastating effects in a place like Haiti where the infrastructure is not good, transportation is not good, and communication is not good, and the losses, housing is not good, um, the losses are higher than they would be in other places and are higher than they are in other places. And then in the aftermath, um, things like infectious disease will spread through mosquitoes and, um, and you know, getting people clean water and access to food will be challenging as well. So, you know, it's, I reflect on it as just, a, a, uh, you know, out of concern for the people there. But I also think about it through the lens of health and, and where we can, uh, in kind of high leverage ways, invest in making people healthier. And if I could just uh, add one other thing to that, Allison, I want to thank you so much for bringing that up. And um, I wanted to just encourage all the listeners to the show. If another way you could maybe do us a favor or show support or uh, just show solidarity would be to donate. Uh, I donated earlier this week to Partners in Health, PIH.org. Uh, Paul Former, Farmer has been in Haiti since you know, for, for over a decade, I believe. And so uh, PIH.org, uh, Partners in Health, is doing great work there. All right. Let's all do that. Okay. That's that's today's, today's twill task for everyone. So my next uh, piece of lightning is uh, a couple of different, um, somewhat interesting work products from our dear friends at HHS. Uh, the first is a guidance on HIPAA and cloud computing, uh, from HHS, presumably from ONC, though it's not explicitly marked. And Frank, this should uh, remind you of some of your great work. I think you did with Tara uh, before on, on cloud computing and so on. Oh, yes. Now, I'm not sure that it's been particularly unclear, uh, but certainly this guidance really does nail shut any half-open doors. Uh, it is, the guidance said, absolutely clear that both CEs and BAs need to have BAAs with cloud service providers, CS 
CSPs. Uh, they need to do risk assessments with regard to the particular CSP they're thinking of engaging. And I, one point that really did strike me as particularly interesting, uh, all of this applies um, even if the PHI is encrypted and the CSP doesn't have the decryption key. So a BA is a BA even if it can't view the PHI, which I thought was kind of interesting. Next, ONC has released a so-called guide for providers who are entering into EHR contracts. Its full title gives you the flavor of the document, uh, EHR Contracts Untangled, Selecting Wisely Negotiating Terms and Understanding the Fine Print. And it struck me as I read this, and it's a fine piece of work. I don't have complaints with it substantively, but there are sort of three ways I think you could sort of read this. Uh, first, healthcare providers or their counsel must be incredibly naive about the ways of the world and specifically HIPAA requirements and meaningful use requirements. Or secondly, EHR vendors really are the sharks people have been telling us they are, selling <laughs> substandard equipment and using ugly contracting terms. Or I guess a third interpretation is that this is ONC overstepping its mark and involving itself in market transactions. My guess that the explanation is that it's a combination of one and two, but I expect the third to be part of the narrative in the coming weeks as industry and Congress prepares for the big fight that we're going to see soon over ONC's expected uh, regulation that will increase its role in certification and recommending HIT. I think that sounds exactly right. And great updates there, Nick. So I do have one final, if you will bear with me. And to an extent, it, 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 it it's a linkage in with Allison's work, an issue that's both been litigated before some state high courts. Uh, the extend care case in Kentucky is particularly special if you are interested in um, powers of attorney law, and also was the subject of a stinging uh, New York Times series last year, the use of pre-dispute arbitration clauses and how they impinge on private rights, specifically uh, with regard to nursing homes. In an NPRM last year, um, or earlier this year, C CMS, uh, the NPRM is Reform of Requirements for Long-Term Care Facilities. It, it has a long, long list of, of issues it goes in for. But uh, specifically on arbitration, in the NPRM, CMS took a disclosure model, um, saying, uh, you know, much more information had to be given before the um, uh, the, the pre-dispute arbitration clause was signed and so on. But comments do lead to changes. And the final rule, which just came out, actually bans such clauses. So what will become 483.70N uh, now says, quote, a facility must not enter into a pre-dispute agreement for binding arbitration with any resident or resident's representative, nor require that a resident sign an arbitration agreement as a condition of admission to the LTC facility, period, the end. Uh, the rest of the clause does then address how to handle notice and sort of consent with regard to post-dispute agreements for arbitration. It would be nice to think, uh, along with some of the work that the um, the new Consumer Protection Agency is doing, Frank, CMS here is is pointing the way to turn back a uh, a rather sad history of arbitration agreements uh, being imposed on consumers with no real ability 
to push back. I totally agreed with that, Nick. And, you know, something I have to look into about that is there was an old expose probably eight years ago about uh, private equity chains taking over nursing homes, then so arranging the corporate shell companies such that they were only the landlords under the land and that somehow insulated them from lawsuits. And I've got to take a look, you know, about how have have these arbitration agreements sort of been complemented over time by that type of corporate uh, strategy. But you're absolutely right that this is a fantastic uh, step forward. So let's uh, leap from that nursing home issue to the broader and much more difficult question of long-term care generally. And Allison's new article, uh, which is about to appear, I guess, in the Yale Journal of Health Policy, Law and Ethics. There's a sort of core statement at the beginning. Long-term care as a private obligation is increasingly untenable. And then you move into what strike me as the sort of the key reframing device, which is what if, and I quote now, what if instead of designating these costs as a private obligation, we considered them as a collective problem, the manifestation of a social risk. And you introduce us to the idea or the perspective, if you like, of the next friend risk. Is that a good place to start talking about the article? Sure. Uh, So the, the article is pushing on the idea of what do we consider to be long-term care risk. And so to take a step back from this article for just a moment, and then I'll dive right back in where, where you um, where you were uh, beginning with the notion of whether this is a private or a social risk. But if you, if you pull the lens back and think about how we develop our social welfare policy more broadly, one of the things that has been highly influential over the the past century, really, is the notion of risk. And it used to be be that ideas like need, and it is in other places, that ideas like need are highly influential. But here, and with our particular modern social welfare state, the idea of risk often motivates when we think that something should be a collective responsibility, when we are willing to kind of join together to help cushion a particular harm. And so this work grows out of a couple of different streams of thinking that I've been doing in, in my research. One is that is, is trying to elucidate that that notion of what is risk and what regulation should do and what social insurance should do is highly malleable. And so, um, and sometimes, and sometimes can there can be like multiple threads of often conflicting ideas about uh, what is the purpose of regulation, what kind of risk should it be mitigating, and then the other piece that I've spent a lot of time thinking about over the last few years is um, questions of financial and health security, especially with respect to aging. So delving into this project for me was really interesting because I see I see this problem as existing at the intersection of those how we've considered the risk of long term care and questions of security. And what this paper does is it says that we've been thinking about this problem too narrowly. It's not the most popular thing to say when you have a problem that is already recognized as huge and uh, and kind of unmanageable from a policy perspective. A number of efforts have been unsuccessful to address it. But um, the goal is to, is to shift the lens of how we're thinking about long-term care and policy. And so what, what I um, did in this, in this work was to say we've often thought about this problem from the perspective of people who need long-term care or who need help. Um, and I call this the care recipient perspective. And I track how our policies and kind of how our, uh, how our lens on this problem have come from that perspective. And I asked, well, what if we thought about it equally or instead from the perspective of friends and family members who become responsible of people who need long-term care? How might we think about it then? And so my goal is to show that that we could think about this responsibility for somebody else actually as a social risk, and it brings it into an insurance frame. Maybe then we think about that as something insurable, 
Um, and, and as we start to think about collective solutions to this problem, if we bring that perspective and we would design, we would design long-term care policies and solutions differently if we're thinking about it both from the risk that it poses to an individual who needs care and to the people who become responsible for that care, the friends and family who do. Yes, and I really liked your um, characterization of this next friend risk. It reminded me actually of this uh, RAND study that said the cost of informal caregiving for the U.S. elderly is $522 billion annually. And that was sort of on the aggregate level, trying to characterize you know, what was uh, happening in the U.S. economy as a whole. By you know looking at the feminist scholars' critiques of the current status quo, and you know adding it into your already, I mean, I think great body of work about the nature of financial risk imposed by, say, Medicare, employer-sponsored insurance, other the exchanges. I thought that was really nice. One question, though, I wanted to ask to sort of tee off uh, or tee up the overall discussion is: you mentioned in a recent Health Affairs blog post that the Class Act, which was our last, I guess, national effort to grapple with this was actuarially unsound and repealed. Could you explain for listeners uh, what the Class Act was trying to do and why it was unsound? So the Class Act was passed as part of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, it had its own title in the Affordable Care Act. And it was, um, it was for many years, it was a project that, uh, that Ted Kennedy had pushed forward and, and was eventually successful as part of the Affordable Care Act. And it was intended to be a social insurance program for long-term care. So when I started thinking in, about this project, part of what I was imagining it would be was a critique, actually, of the Class Act um, and the ways that it was too limited and how it envisioned a social insurance program for long-term care. Um, but soon after the ACA was passed, the Class Act was actually repealed in whole because as they started thinking about the numbers and what it would take to finance the promised benefits in the program, it seemed that the the uh, that the program was unlikely to raise the money necessary to do so. And, part, and a large reason for that, and probably the main reason for that, is that the program was set up as voluntarily. Uh, as voluntary and through employment. And so people had to, um, people could, the way it was set up was as an opt out, but people could opt out of the of the program. And the same way that private insurance for long-term care has um, has been plagued, the, the, the notion was that this program was also going to be plagued by adverse selection, where people who, uh, you know, who thought that they were going to need it were going to stay in and people who thought they weren't going to need it were going were gonna to opt out. And then based on the, uh, the, the, um, level of contribution from people who are working, uh, it, there was a sense that there wasn't going to be enough money to actually pay for the benefits once people, even though there was a delay, actually, there was a period of delay before the benefits would start paying. But even with that, there was a sense that uh, the program wasn't going to be able to finance itself. So so that's a, the actuarial critique of the program. One could critique the program even had it been actuarially sound, because you could have imagined it as a mandatory program or having slightly higher contributions. And um, I would still have critiqued the program for a number of different reasons. First of all, um, it was designed in a way that the benefits, e even in the best case scenario, were going to be pretty limited, which what would help, obviously. I mean, anything that, that adds more financing to long-term care is going to help people who need care and is going to help people who become responsible for their care. But it would have still been incomplete uh, in terms of the amount of care it would have paid for. So it would have left quite a bit of responsibility still on family and friends and uh, and then would have taken the wind out of the sails of, of you know, future solution in, in this regard. Um, 
So I think that, you know, even, even had the program played out, it was still a pretty limited conception of what social insurance for long-term care could and should be. So on that note, let's turn to sort of where we would look traditionally or currently with regard to insurance for long-term care. As you point out in the article, Medicare does not uh, insure long-term care. Um, and from a public perspective, Medicaid finances over 60% Uh, of long-term care services. So we've got public insurance playing here, and we also have private insurance. Um, So could you sort of just take us through those two models and and maybe uh, establish the the flaws in the current model? Yeah, so this is one of the things that people actually find um, pretty surprising about long-term care. And as I presented this paper, uh, that, that, that even among my educated audiences, among even health law audiences, people thought was pretty surprising. So the first is the, the question of private insurance. Uh, don't we have private insurance for this? And, and why isn't that working? There's a, a pretty strong consensus that the private insurance market for long-term care has just failed. Um, it's It has failed uh, both because of problems of perception and problems of prices. So often this is an area where people uh, underestimate the, the fact that they're, they're going to need this insurance and uh, all of the kind of cognitive biases that you see in, um, you know, in the literature come into play here. This is something that would happen long in the future. People are optimistic about their own health or need. Um, and so many people, you know, for those reasons, weren't buying. And then you get an adverse selection pr- a problem where people who are buying are more likely to need and the prices are then very high. Um, and so we've seen things like, and even even for people who buy policies, the benefits are narrow. They don't pay for very much. So they still leave people with quite a bit of need. Um, so we've seen the premiums going up on these policies, um, you know, kind of in a shocking way over time. So insurance companies generally can't raise the price for an individual if, if they end up needing, you know, becoming less healthy over time, but they can for um, on a class basis for whole classes of insured. Insurers are doing this. Insurers are pulling out of this business and selling their business to other insurers. So the consensus there is that private long-term care is not working. Some people are thinking about um, Jeff Brown, Amy Finkelstein, and some others have have you know been thinking about how do we revive this market. But I think it's a pretty uphill battle to do that. So then, if we turn to the public insurance side, the piece that people find especially surprising is that Medicare doesn't pay for long-term care. So we often think of long-term care as an aging problem. It's actually not that. About half of the long-term care in this country goes to people who are under age 65. But um, Medicare, uh, you know, as as a program, might be a logical. Uh, locus for long-term care insurance. Medicare doesn't pay for for any long-term care. At best, it pays for post-acute care after hospitalization and, and um, some home care. And so Medicaid has become the, the public insurance space for paying for long-term care. In um, in 2012, there was about, uh, Frank, I'm going to loop back into the kind of numbers that you were talking about, the RAND estimate as well. So in 2012, there was $220 billion in paid long-term care. Medicaid paid for about 60% of this amount. Um and uh, and and then the rest is is you know is paid through some other public sources and a lot of it is is out of pocket as well. So if we think about this, this is part of how I in this work I'm showing that this problem is actually larger than we think about it. When when we think about this 220 billion dollar in paid care, it's not really capturing the demand or the need for care. So if we think about what individuals are providing, if all you do is take the hours that friends and family spend on care and quantify it. 
it makes this a problem that is, I think, even well larger than the RAND estimate of 500 billion. I think it's, it is, you know, it, it is uh, many times what we're currently paying for in care. And so I've actually called this in the paper, I call this the invisible co-payment of long-term care because it's costs that are hidden from the public high. They're ha- it's happening in the home, off the balance sheets, but it's costs that individuals are bearing. And that's the important point is that we haven't erased these costs, but people are, um, you know, are, are paying a high cost in terms of financial harms, in terms of health harms, interpersonal harms by stepping into this role. And we haven't considered that as part of the public problem when we think about the risks of long-term care or the cost of long-term care. And so what this paper is trying to do is say, you know, if we step back and we think about the fact that we don't really have good private insurance, the public insurance has been very partial here. And in fact, has I argue in the paper, has reinforced the need for family members and friends to step in more than over a period of time in the 20th century um, was, was looking to be the case. So the public insurance has, in fact, reinforced a structure that relies on friends and family. Um, and and what this has done is created a tremendous social risk, the risk of becoming responsible for somebody who needs long-term care. And what if we thought about that as an insurable risk? How would we approach this problem differently? So I, I love that that phrase, the the uh, the hidden uh, co-payment. I, I underlined that as I as I went through the article. An early sense I have had of the piece, or a pushback that I found as I was reading it, is that I was surprised about the narrative of increasing long-term care because I'd kind of got used to the narrative of the elderly wishing to remain in their own homes with friends and families and and seeing things like readmission penalties right. and te- technologically mediated chronic disease management all sort of edging us towards appropriate sort of wraparound care in the home but you seem to 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 twist that and and suddenly i was i was in some kind of shock uh, and and i realized i'd fallen into the very trap that you were you were discussing that i was looking at this from the perspective of the care recipients preferences rather than their friends or family right and i think that that's the that's the social narrative about it and it's it's correct it, i mean it, it's there is a reason why there has been an effort coming from many different angles to move care out of institutions and into homes. In the first part of this paper, I lay out all of the many pieces um, that have started to move care into the home. So when Medicaid first started paying for long-term care, we saw an institutional bias where it paid for care in nursing homes. And then the private nursing home industry boomed because all of a sudden there was all this money coming into growing private nursing homes. And then we saw a retrenchment from that. And it came from a number of different places. But the, the piece that you're talking about, Nick, most poignantly was that it came from civil rights advocates and patient advocates who were representing the perspective of the autonomy of people with disabilities and people who are aging, who wanted to age in place. They wanted to be in their homes. And so Medicaid, um, so we saw, and and they litigated on this um, kind of on this front through, through a couple of different uh, rounds of litigation that Sam Bagenstos uh, uh, details in a really wonderful article where they challenged um, they challenged through through a number of different uh, means, including substantive due process. And then when the ADA was passed through the ADA, institutionalization as being di- as being discriminatory, as being um, actually you know, a, a legal violation against the rights of people with disabilities. And the result of that was, um, you know, culminated in the Olmstead case, which said that um, that it is in fact a violation of the ADA uh, to have people in a in a more restrictive net, uh, setting than is necessary. So, it, so that the 
the the Olmstead uh, case led us to uh, um, a place where the the kind of the least restrictive setting was then the policy goal. And at the same time, we saw a move in policy and public policy and Medicaid and other places, which was all about moving people out of institutions and into homes. Now, some of this was all motivated, the litigation and the, the policy changes happening in parallel. And the policy changes including th- included things like Medicaid allowing demonstration programs so that states could use, states had to cover and have to cover people who need institutional care in an institution and then um, were allowed through demonstration programs instead to use those dollars to pay for people in home settings. Uh, And then we've seen policies even stronger than that. There's through the the, um, the kind of in the past decade, including through the Affordable Care Act, that actually pay states to move people out of institutions and into homes. And some of this is motivated by the best interests of people who are, um, you know, who are needing long-term care. And some of it's motivated by interest in saving money. And it's that second part in particular that um, that is interesting because it's saving money on the books, right? It's a budgetary saving, um, but it's doing that by externalizing costs onto friends and family. It's not that we're moving care into the homes and putting structures in place to pay for the care that people actually need. It's that we're moving it into the homes and leaving gaps and leaving long waiting lists and doing all other kinds of things that are creating structural reliance on friends and family. So that's the perspective I'm picking up on is, you know, it may be that it's it's best for care recipients to be in their homes. And it is also that we need to think about the dual risk created for their communities if that is a policy that we want to support. And we need to think about how our public policy can address the problem from both of these angles. I totally agree. And I wanted to add another perspective here. I think that, you know, adding the next friend perspective is so important here Um, as someone that, you know, I I had some of these duties for some time and I can attest to their uh, sort of really uh, changing the the way in which one conducts one's life in in very profound ways. Um, I wanted to add the labor perspective um, because I could see that, you know, I was thinking about the problem of why the private insurance market did not – take hold here. And in considering that issue, I thought, you know, thinking to, about Medicare as a sort of benchmark uh, way in which a very large payer could in some ways drive down certain costs, um, although I'm sure there's debate over that. Uh, I'm wondering if maybe, you know, Medicaid just hasn't been able to play a similar role. But then on the other hand, when I started thinking about it from a labor perspective, I thought, you know, is there a room for something like Bob Kuttner's call for professionalization, upskilling, and higher wages and security uh, of position for home health aides and the others who are doing the critical work here? Or um, is it really an area where that's just too derogiste and we should be hoping for some of these new sort of like Uber for home care um, startups to take off to drive down wages in the sector? Any any thoughts there? So you raised a couple of things that I think are interesting, Frank. I, the the p- part of my motivation here in showing that this is a bigger problem than we've made it out to be is that we've underfunded it. And when we don't put public dollars towards a problem, we do things like we dry up labor supply, we underpay labor supply. We don't um, build community-based institutions. or There's no kind of innovation funding in this space right now to ask what would be the models that would be perhaps better than either the home or the or the kind of large-scale institutional model um, that we know through both the public, 
know, the public, huge public institutions of four and then the private nursing homes as well. Um, so there hasn't been a lot of money put towards this problem. So one of my goals in thinking about bringing attention to this and saying this is a larger problem than we think is can we get some more funding into this space? It is so underfunded. And there's a really poignant line in a piece that Joe White has written when he says that you know not only is this work underfunded, but this work is really undesirable in some ways. I mean, thinking about, you know, helping people go to the bathroom, changing up, change, you know, cleaning up after them if they if they soil their beds, helping somebody uh, eat, moving them from one place to another, you know, lifting a heavy person. Like, this is physically demanding work. It's hard work. Um, and so Peggy Smith has actually written some really wonderful work from the former labor, labor perspective about this problem and how uh, and how we should think about treating the labor force in a more, um, you know, in a more in a way that's commensurate with the effort that they're putting in and uh and 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 what this work means um it um it 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 raises questions about how we've thought about caring in our society so if you pull it back up to the 10,000 foot perspective we have always undervalued caregiving work and part of why we have the problem that we do today is that that caregiving aspect has been undervalued in Medicare and Medicaid. When these laws were passed, some of that made sense because we had social structures in the homes where where these programs were built, as were, as were most of our social welfare state, on a breadwinner model, where there was somebody in the home to help with things. And when we thought about security, it was often security in terms of the financial security of the worker in the household, which was almost always the man in the household. And so we built these programs on that model. And in that kind of model, caring is something that happens without pay in the homes. And we've never really uh, erased that kind of notion or that that way of valuing or thinking about caring in in our in, you know in Medicare and Medicaid and any of these programs. So if we start to think about care, caregivers and caregiver risk, whether it be the informal laborers or the formal laborers who are also facing facing risks of financial security from being underpaid, risks of health insecurity, they uh, you know they 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 have high rates of workplace injury and other problems. Um, it's asking us to conceive of this as a social problem in a different way, whether you think about it from the formal or the informal uh, perspective. There was also something you said in the beginning that I wanted to just um, reflect on, which is part of what I have loved about this work, is every time I present this work in law school workshops and conferences, I always have somebody coming up to me afterwards saying, yes, I've had this experience. I get it. And as I've been working on this project for a period of time, I've seen so many people around me go through this in different forms and models. And so I think it's a it's a problem that both for me and for others resonates intellectually and also really resonates personally. And that's the point of thinking about it as next friend risk, is that this is something that affects all of us and that we can really relate to. It's it's unpredictable. It is universal. And in most cases, it's unavoidable. And most of us are going to step in if somebody we know and love needs help. And so once we start to think about it from that perspective, I think it could um, raise its salience from a, from a public policy perspective. Most Congress people can think about what it would mean to, uh, you know, to, to, to have a family member in need in that way and have to step in or, uh, you know, or, or to see another family member, to see a sibling step in in that kind of situation. I think it really resonates with and makes sense to people. Yes, I can see that. I was Many thoughts went through my mind as I, as I read the piece, including just an acquaintance of mine 
who I, I share a passion with classic cars with. And I was chatting him with the other day and asking how his his lovely old classic was. And he said, well, it's on the market. I said, oh, really? He said, yes, I, I need the money to put my mother in a nursing home. And when when you see someone's passion like that uh, uh, being a, a cost of the, the system, uh, it really does, it, it puts it into, in, into perspective. And, you know, Nick, that's part of what I'm pushing on in this paper too, is how do we, how do we quantify what is the harm here? It's a really, it's a, it's a problem that I don't fully resolve in the paper, but I talk about why it's hard. And I, and I plan to continue to unravel some of this in, in future projects, maybe in a book at some point. And that piece of it, I'm trying to push at the boundaries of what do we consider to be harm? How do we quantify harm? And that piece, you know, some people may say, oh, well, you know, he had to sell his car. But you can also think about that, that that, that is his passion. That's part of what he is motivated to do in life. And so when it is this responsibility for other people that disrupts our lives in meaningful ways, even if it doesn't mean that we leave our wage earning job, but this kind of larger conception of people losing their self-determination and their ability to uh, engage in their social life, to engage in their hobbies, to self-enrich, to build, to educate themselves, whatever it may be. I actually think that that is part of the social risk that we're talking about here, kind of part of the disruption of the social fabric. And why that concerns me, the financial the financial harms, which are tremendous for some people, and the, um, the kind of harms to people's health and well-being are, you know, are kind of what we think of as the as the first run harms, the, the primary harms in these kinds of situations. But when we think about the way it kind of disrupts people's abilities to steer their lives, it becomes even more important when you think about the disproportionate effect of informal long-term care. Still two-thirds, this number is changing over time, but still two-thirds of informal caregivers are women. Informal caregiving happens more often in low-income families in, um, and in, in, um, in, fam- in African-American families, in Asian-American families. So it's a problem that has a uh, disproportionate effect on some people, which in my mind makes it, uh, you know, even more troubling from a, from a, um, a social policy perspective. There was a phrase you used, a sentence that I, I marked, insurance must be deni- designed to enable a next friend to toggle more freely between these choices and to use benefits in a way that minimizes her own insecurity, however she might define it, and to balance caring for a family member with other pursuits. I thought that was a a lovely way of putting it. Thank you. I think that the the solution space is hard here, but what I try to get at in terms of the principle of the solution space is that this is a problem where risk manifests, where the harms manifest in many ways. And if we really want individuals to be able to minimize the impact on their own life, we have to give the next friends some ability to steer the direction of long-term care choices for their family and friends. And so if we built social policies that were flexible between, if it, you know, to make it real for a moment, if you have, um, you know, a, a daughter whose father needs long-term care, our social policy choices right now create every incentive for her to take him into her home or to move into his home with him and to um, you know support him. Whether there's Medicaid funding in the picture or not, that's what our, what our policies have created an incentive for. If we created a structure first where we actually provided some compensation for care, but then this toggle I've talked about where people could choose to provide the care themselves and get some compensation for it, or to outsource it or arrange it for others to provide it. It's it's an it's a you know it's a real um, 
it's a liberal approach to the problem. It's saying that we can let people choose what they think is the greatest harm to themselves, to their families, to their short-term well-being, to their long-term well-being, and toggle back and forth between the provide care or the pay for or arrange for care space. And so if somebody decides that, you know, she, it, it is critically important for her to stay in her job in order to be able to create security for her children and her family and to keep, you know, that uh, fabric of life intact, then she could use the dollars to pay for care. If she would prefer to step into the space of providing care, there would be some compensation for it. And so that's the the kind of the most neutral version of the toggle. I also talk about how we talk, we think about choices to provide care or not. And in our society, there are so many different structures that shape what is a quote unquote choice and why somebody, especially a woman, would choose to provide care. And so if we think that there are tons of pre-existing, uh, which I do think, and I lay out in the paper that there are tons of pre-existing structures that bias people, especially women towards providing care directly, we might even want the policies to push against that a little bit to uh, to try to neutralize that. So I, I kind of, uh, you could think of this as kind of a, 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 um, a softer, hard version of neutrality here, right? Is, is what does it take to be neutral? And maybe it requires a little bit of a thumb on the scale that actually, especially in cases that we know to be particularly challenging for caregivers, caring for somebody with Alzheimer's, caring for, uh, you know, for people with certain kinds of disabilities, uh, that you put a thumb on the scale towards people hiring help in those situations. And when we look at policies that are out there, part of what's fascinating to me, and I, as I was thinking about this paper, I started reading about social insurance programs in other countries, many of whom who have long-term care social insurance programs, and they have various models. They have some models that really strive for creating choice, and they have some that put a thumb on uh, family caregiving. The German model does this, which is not surprising if you kind of think of the family first uh, mentality. And then some that, in, in, a, in what I think is a surprising way, have moved away from that. The Japanese system doesn't pay for family caregiving. It only pays for formal caregiving. And so people could still choose to provide the care uh, themselves, but the social policies are strongly pushing towards formal caregiving. In particular in that country, alleviating daughters-in-law from the responsibility of caring for parents-in-law. Well, thank you so much, Allison. And my closing thoughts will be, uh, first, I really hope someone on the uh, Clinton transition team or in the uh, Brooklyn headquarters is reading this paper. I think it's a incredibly uh, well comprehensive and well conceptualized uh, approach to the problem. And uh, secondly, I hope that our readers at some point will be able to take a look at Larissa McFarquhar's uh, article on a hospice nurse in the New Yorker called A Tender Hand in the Presence of Death which I think is an amazing uh, humanistic account of the type of labor that we've been uh, describing uh, in in the program today. Thank you, Frank. I appreciate it. When I, when I started this work, one of the things that is out there is a lot of really wonderful narratives about, about, about care and about caregiving, both informal family care and formal care. And, uh, and I really, I, I think that that reading those stories gives a human face to, to thinking about care. And the, I dedicate this article I, to a number of people, um, who in my family, who I've seen since I started working on this project, make heroic efforts to care for other family members. And I respect and admire them for the, the, 
amount of effort and sacrifice for some. It has been quite tremendous that they've made. And I also dedicate the article to my son. And, and I say that I hope that he never feels obligated to care for me in my old age. And it's not that I don't hope that he would care for me because I do hope he cares for me and, uh, you know, and, and wants to spend time with me. But I hope that we don't have a social structure. That means that if I should ever need long-term care, he has to be the one to step into that situation and that position. And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A very special thank you to Professor Hoffman for rejoining us. Alison, it was great fun having you with us. What a what a wonderful piece of work, and, and we want to see more in this in this uh, tale. Thank you so much. So we post our show notes at twill.com. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where can you be reached? I am at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. And don't forget, as we said at the top of the show, uh, Partners in Health is PIH.org. Let's make some Twill uh, donations to that, and we'll make sure we have the link in the show notes. Thank you for joining us. Uh, be grateful that you're having a legally interesting and healthy week. Mm-hmm.